Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So they, they had this conception that the French ate frogs. And uh, so when they see these boys looking around the pond, they, must, they, they, they conclude that they're looking for supper. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Norm Damaris. And he's discussing the origin of the French insult of frog. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases. The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Norm Damaris, and he's discussing the origin of the French insult of frog. This is a really interesting article by Norm Damaris, one worth our consideration and very revealing of the time. The French have often been called frogs, very pejoratively, by the British, and that survived in the American colonies. Norm Damaris explores that insult more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Norm Damaris. Norm Damaris, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Barry. It's great, Brady. It's great to be here. Norm, you've been on the show before. Remind us about your background. Well, I'm a librarian. I've been an acquisitions librarian at Providence College uh, for 27 years before retiring. And before that, I was at Catholic University in Washington. Um, I've been an acquisitions librarian most of my life. And um, uh, as an acquisitions librarian, uh, I I guess I'd I'd be considered an information junkie. Um, when I started working on the um, on my uh, guidebooks to the Revolutionary War, uh, I started seeing the need for collecting or getting uh, primary sources. I was working with a lot of diaries, and um, as part of that uh, process, I found a lot of things that the average researchers can't find or would be very difficult to find without traveling great distances. Um, so I started collecting all of the published diaries that I've, I was aware of, and now I'm uh, working on some manuscript diaries. So a lot of these diaries have helped in my uh, in my own research and writing. And um, the article we're going to talk about tonight was one of the, uh, the byproducts of uh, some of that research. Norm, what first drew your interest into this topic? <coughs> well... Um, we are in, a, in an age where there's uh, a lot of prejudice. Uh, you know, if you look around, what's going on is the hatred of this group and hatred of that group, and uh, it, that's turning into violence. And uh, this is uh, an age-old problem. I guess it uh, dates back to uh, Cain and Abel um, and the, the beginning of humanity. So uh, as I was doing the research, that I've, I've had this information in the back of my head for a long time, and... And um, I've never done anything with it. And uh, I was in conversation with a few people, and they weren't aware of all of this. 
And when I wrote the article on uh, the antipathy or the uh, the uh, the prejudice that the Islanders had when the French arrived, I thought this was an appropriate uh connection with that article. Norm, you begin your article by discussing the British and French and their long history of insults and animus toward each other. Could you give us a quick run-through of that? Yes. Uh, the, the British and the French always hated, have been hating each other for a long time. And they, uh, they have all kinds of uh, disparaging remarks about each other. And I would think I think this dates back at least to the year 1066, when the, the French won the Battle of Hastings. Uh, the result of the Battle of Hastings was that a French, rule, a French king ruled England for over 300 years. And I think that, that was the beginning of this antipathy, if it didn't happen earlier than that. Um, it may have happened earlier than that. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not aware of, uh, of, of that. But there's always been these wars going on, and particularly religious wars. So because England is uh, Protestant and uh, uh, France is Catholic, there's always been that animosity between the two, among other things. And um, so that has been seething for a long time, and it sort of uh, shows itself uh, at the beginning of the American Revolution. Norm, talk about how the French were treated and perceived by Americans upon their arrival. Well, for one thing, they were afraid. Uh, they, they, the city had been occupied by the British for, th for th a little over three years, and they did not look forward to another army coming to occupy the city. Um, also, the, a lot of the people were uh, veterans of uh, the French-Indian War, where the French were the enemy in that war. And the French had been the enemy in all of the colonial wars because they sided with the Indians. So here they've got a, for, a former enemy coming as, a, as an ally, and they're, they're very mistrustful. Uh, plus the fact that many of the people, primarily the, uh, the people in Rhode Island, uh, were, uh, they were religious uh, emigres. Uh, they came to Boston, many of them came from Massachusetts. They were kicked out of Massachusetts because of their, uh, their religious beliefs. So they came to Rhode Island. And Newport, which was the capital of uh, Rhode Island at the time, was known as the cesspool of heresy. Uh, Cotton Mather called it, called it that because that's where they expelled all of these, uh, these non-believers or people who, who dissented from uh, the religious beliefs that were going on in the various uh, colony, various uh, enclaves in Massachusetts. So they come down to Rhode Island, and uh, now the, uh, and many of them came uh, to uh, America to escape the, uh, the um, religious persecutions that were going on during the Inquisition. Uh, the Edict of Nantes, uh, which was the first attempt to provide uh, to uh, toleration for uh, the religions uh, had been in, in effect for 90 years, and now it gets repealed in around 1680. So all of the non-Catholics or the, the the dissenters start looking for ways to escape, and many of them uh, escape to America. And um, so they're they're here, and now the people who the, the religious denomination that persecuted them back in Europe 
per- persecuted their ancestors is now coming in as an ally. So they're they're even more afraid, and that 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 contributed to this uh, this diffidence that that they had. So when the French arrived here, uh, there was nobody to greet them at the uh, at the landing sites, and uh, Rochambeau was pretty pretty miffed at that. Norm, you relay a pretty interesting story, uh, beginning in a place called Frog Pond. Could you tell that story to us? <laughs> well, Frog Pond is uh, it, it, it's gone by, by a, di- a number of different names, and um, I don't. I haven't been to Boston in a while, uh, but uh, I don't think it exists any longer. I think it's the site with the with the um, the, uh, the skating rink is in the winter, and in the summertime they uh, it, it's now all cement, and they uh, in the summertime they uh, they they use it as a water park. Um, well, back then it was a small pond, and uh, being a small pond, it probably had a number of frogs, and. Um, there were a lot of young soldiers in the army. Um, uh, I've, I've known a drummer who's 13 years old. Uh, there was one um, one who died in Newport. Uh, he was only 14 years old. Uh, he's buried in, in Newport. Uh, no, there's one buried in Providence who was uh, 13 years old. So these young guys, in order to pass their free time, would probably walk along the ponds looking for frogs or, or things to do. And... Um, in that process, the French, the British sort of, they believed that the French ate frogs and snails and salad. And, and, you know, they said they live on this stuff. And it's sort of like the, you know, like eating worms and things. It's the sort of the, uh, the, the dregs of, uh, of society. You're eating, you're eating sort of like garbage stuff. And um, so they... They had this conception that the French ate frogs, and uh, so when they see these boys looking around the pond, they must they, they they conclude that they're looking for supper, when they're probably just looking to catch frogs and maybe play with them, and so the word gets out that you know, the, the the soldiers are you know looking for frogs. Well, uh, Nicholas Tracy uh, is uh, a wealthy merchant in uh, in Cambridge. And he wants to entertain the French officers. So he invites Admiral Despain and many of his officers to come to dinner. And he's of the assumption, just like everybody else, that the French eat frogs. So he goes to great lengths to uh, have his hire his help, slaves or whatever, whatever to uh, sort of comb the ponds and marshes around the area and get as many frogs as they could. So he gets these rather large frogs, and uh, he, he sort of boils them in a soup. Well, when um, the officers come to dinner, uh, he's got these two large terrines on the table, and then his uh, servants are uh, dishing out soup from the kitchen and bringing out the plates to the officers. Well, the first, the first, off, the first person to get uh, the bowl of soup was the French consul of Boston. He gets, he looks at his plate, and he's got this large frog, and he doesn't know what to do with it, so he picks it up by the hind legs to examine it, and he's looking at it, and he's very curious and inquisitive, so he passes it on to the, the next soldier, 
And by the time the frog has gone all the way around the table, every officer has a bowl of, uh, of soup in front of him with a large frog in it. And they're all looking at it inquisitively. And Mr. Tracy is getting a little bit upset because he went to great lengths to gather all of this food, and um, they're not eating it. And he's wondering why. And it's because it's, it's not their national dish, as he thought it was. Uh, they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> now, the account never doesn't say what happened afterward. What, what, you know, what, what happened to the frogs, um, what, to the soup, or what else they had for dinner. It sort of just ends there, with everybody being inquisitive and sort of like the... Uh, the, the tension building, and then it somehow dissipates. And the story just ends there. Norm, how does a story like this come to light? <clears throat> well, I don't know if you know Carl Becker, who's the captain of the 2nd Rhode Island. He, he, When I joined the 2nd Rhode Island Regiment, he uh, mentioned the, that story to me as though it were held here in Newport, in Rhode Island. And I had it in the back of my mind, so as I was collecting these diaries that I was talking about, I came across the uh, this book of recollections of, um, I'm drawing a blank on the author's name, uh, but um, it's in the article. Uh, he, uh, I had this diary, and all of a sudden I'm fingering through it, and uh, I find this uh, this passage about the, the Feast of Frogs. And... Um, I read that, and I, I said, that's exactly the story that I heard. And I kept it in the back of my mind, and um, I put it aside for many years. And uh, when uh, when I decided to, uh, to to write the article, I, I, I recollected that and sort of dug it up, went found where it was, and, um, and, and started working with that. Now, the further research that I did on it is that uh, the – Article says that uh, Mr. Tracy had the dinner at his villa. He doesn't say where the villa is. Um, it's in he, the villa is in Cambridge, and Brattle Street is the it's called Tory Row, and um, that was the most Tony part of the city at the time. And it was so so important that Washington took the John Vassal House as his headquarters. And the Vassal House is where, uh, well, eventually Henry Wadsworth Longfellow lived in the house. And uh, the apparently the dates indicate that uh, that uh, Mr. Tracy acquired the house or li was living there in 1781. And um, we, there's a possibility he was renting that even before 1781. But the dinner was held in 1778 because he, the article specifies that it was Admiral Destain's uh, fleet that uh, or his officers that were invited to the dinner. Now, Admiral Destain goes to Boston after the French fleet is damaged prior to the, uh, the siege of the uh, the Battle of Rhode Island. Now he's there from mid July, no mid August, and he's there for about two months uh, while the while the fleet is being repaired. And um, 
there were a lot of there were a lot of tensions going on there also there's another another story during this period that uh that's also um quite interesting but uh anyway he stands there and um in the book the memoirs that or the reminiscences that uh, this author is pub- has collected gets published in 1877 and his son is the one who actually publishes them at this point. Now, because the the book is published in 1887, 1877, and um, the assumption is that uh, Tracy is living in in the Wadsworth Longfellow house um, in seven in uh, he, he he acquires the house or is living there in 1781. Then the story changes. It's no longer Destin's fleet, but Rochambeau's fleet that uh, that's there. Uh, Rochambeau didn't spend a lot of time in Boston. Um, he came to Rhode Island, and uh, Rochambeau himself landed in Boston, but uh, the rest of his fleet arrived in Newport. So he, I don't believe that he was in Boston any length of time in order, or with enough officers to to have this uh, this large dinner. So the story has changed to because so because it's displaced to 1781 they re, they changed the officers and the guests and so on and the the story becomes quite a bit different. And the article the article is picked up by several newspapers and published in various forms among these various newspapers. Some of them published published verbatim except that they changed the names from the original article. And um, then it's picked up by other other sources, and they they re- reprint the article under various titles. Norm, why do you think a story of this nature fascinates us all so much? I think because it's sort of it's human interest, and we're always concerned with human interest, particularly with uh, sort of like gossipy type stories. And this is one that fits perfectly with that. There's a story about uh, during the Gilded Age where um, one of the, tr- the, the the trio of women who dominated society uh, was accosted one evening because she, which another one of the trio approaches her and they're, they're having, having an argument and said, uh, the woman calls her out and says, you know, I understand that you called me a, t- a, f- a frog and a at some party or you know some occasion, and the woman who actually said the story says, "No, no, no! I did not call you a frog. I called you a toad." And you know that that's another kind of story that that lives on. It's very very similar to this, and um, so I, I think, think these kinds of things capture the imagination because, for one thing, they're humorous and they're sort of gossipy nature. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? I think it gives us an idea of uh, sort of like prejudices between the various uh, participants, uh, the various nations, how we have stereotypes of each other, and how those stereotypes affect our behavior and our attitudes and so on. And um, it it feeds the conflict. So the the more the more hatred you can develop, whether it's founded or not, the um, the the more you enhance your own chances, we see this you know not only in uh, in uh, in warfare. This happens in society. Look at the, the political campaigns. How uh, people har- harp on uh, slight uh, 
discrepancies or uh, uh, rumor type things, and they 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 blow them out of proportion. And this this becomes part of the campaign. And we have all of these campaigns that are very very full of mudslinging, and they they're very much the same kind of thing. Or say, like in a, in a war, in warfare, we have all this propaganda to develop hatred of the enemy, whether it's founded or not. Uh, say, like um, during World War II, um, uh, Harry and um, uh, um, Tokyo Rose, uh, the, the, the 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 instigation they're developing among their people to develop uh, this hatred of an enemy they don't know. And the the unknown person or the unknown people are always uh, despicable or suspect. Look at when people move into a neighborhood. Uh, you know, you're, you're you're sort of careful. You know, are these people going to be. Uh, it takes a while to be accepted in, in a neighborhood because of sort of mistrust among the community. They don't don't automatically become friends just just because they move next door. So I think this this attitude is very very common of, of human nature, and uh, it feeds this whole idea of uh, propaganda. It it, uh, uh, it, it could be part of the basis of counterintelligence. Washington was uh, was a very good officer for doing a lot of counterintelligence and uh, deception of the enemy. Um, this kind of thing uh, sort of feeds into that, at least in my opinion. Norm Damaris, thanks again. Thank you very much, Brady. It's always a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.